I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Uh, for those of you who don't know the library company, uh, we are a research library. It was originally founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. And this series, our fireside chat series, is our you know, modest effort at keeping our community alive, our learning community. And so we have called upon our research fellows and independent researchers, and even sometimes staff, to help us sustain that community through this weekly webinar series. So thank you for joining us, carving out a little bit of your Thursday night. With that, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Cameron Zalius. Zalius, did I get it right? Uh, who is currently a PhD candidate in cultural studies at the Graduate School of North American Studies at Freie Universität Berlin. Recent and forthcoming publications have appeared and will appear in the Pennsylvania Magazine of, of History and Biography and H. Sotz-Golt. Research and archival work for his dissertation, tentatively entitled Paradoxes of Liberty, Anti-Slavery, Print, and Colonial Power in Crisis 1729 to 1793, has generously been supported by fellowships from the German Research Foundation, the Library Company of Philadelphia, and the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. His teaching interests include slavery and anti-slavery in the 18th century Atlantic world, the history of pacifism in the Americas, as well as modern and contemporary poetry and poetics. Cameron was a Barra Foundation International Fellow at the Library Company just last year, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us, Cameron. Yeah, thank you, Will, and uh, for setting all of this up. And um, thanks to everyone for coming out tonight, even if it's only digitally. I think these fireside chats like FDR's original ones are a wonderful innovation and uh, really make an important contribution to public scholarship in these dim, if not dark, times. Um, I'd also, just before we begin, like to say thank you to Connie King and Jim Green at the Library Company, who were so helpful. Uh, during my time there. And it was a really wonderful time that I spent. Now, a few weeks ago, one of the fireside chatters mentioned that looking at the past might offer some much needed respite from the dire state of the present. And even though our topic today brings us to the 17th and 18th centuries, I'm afraid I can't offer that same break, that same respite. In some ways, I know my topic, my title today is almost too timely in terms of current discourse. And speaking to you from across the Atlantic, under completely different conditions, I might not be the most appropriate messenger. Nonetheless, I'd like to make the claim, if I may borrow a famous quotation, that the past is a foreign country. And like in most foreign countries, if we want to get to know the locals, we'll have to learn to speak their language. That is, we'll have to do our best to meet them on their own terms. I guess what I'm asking of us is that we take a short leave of absence. It will only be about 40 minutes or so from the claims of the present in order to engage with the strangeness of the past. It's my hope then that afterwards, will be better equipped to take a fresh look at the past in the present. That is, to ask questions about the legacies of slavery and anti-slavery, and perhaps even about politics more generally. My project asks about the emergence and, inter and intermittent re-emergence of anti-slavery thought 
action and printing in the English-speaking Atlantic world over the course of the 18th century. Basically, I want to know why, if racial slavery was an apparently accepted fact of life, and even more importantly, and on multiple levels, deemed absolutely necessary for the maintenance of British imperial economic supremacy, why certain British citizens in the colonies and the metropole, at first individuals and then groups, such as the Quakers, opposed slavery and the slave trade? I also want to know about the resistance of enslaved and formerly enslaved men and women. How did these various forms of anti-slavery resistance inform or even oppose one another? As we will see, the answer to this question involves both a positive and negative relation between white colonial or metropolitan resistance to slavery on the one hand, and the resistance of enslaved and formerly enslaved men and women of African descent on the other. Now, these questions might at first glance strike you as being straightforward, even obvious, but I hope to convince you many of the answers that have been offered have been unable to stand up to the test of closer inspection. Also, I think there's a real value in reformulating and centering questions about resistance in our current moment. Which factors constitute the specific forms acts of resistance can take? What are the limits of these acts, both in terms of language and material reality? My point is that I think we can learn a lot from the struggles of the past if we just try to understand what they were responding to, the relationship between means and ends, that is, what the historical actors themselves really thought they were up to, their self-understanding. Let's take a look at the first group I mentioned above. Just in terms of sheer material, the archive, and especially the print archive, by which I mean printed texts, surely has plenty to tell us about why certain British colonials and metropolitans came to oppose slavery in the slave trade. And yet, the more I read of this primary material, especially the early printed texts, meaning those prior to the 1750s, the more I found myself unconvinced by the standard scholarly accounts, which go something like this. Early on, there were a few heroic, if eccentric, individuals, and then groups, again, like the Quakers, who opposed slavery on moral and religious grounds. Or especially later on in the 18th century, they opposed New World slavery on humanitarian grounds, a result of enlightenment thought and the culture of sensibility. As at least one historian has pointed out, this is kind of like saying Quakers opposed slavery because they were Quakers. And yet many Quakers owned slaves, participated in, or in some way profited from the slave trade. And for almost as long as they held political, economic, and spiritual power in Pennsylvania, they not only opposed taking action on slavery, but they attempted to suppress anti-slavery sentiment within their meetings uh, through censorship and disownment. And if that wasn't enough, then in the case of people like Benjamin Lay and Ralph Sandiford, who I'll come back to in a moment, they performed what we might call public character assassinations. Um, this being an example of one uh, 
after the publication of Benjamin Lay's book. Not to mention Quakers were also involved in framing a completely draconian revised slave code in 1726. The spirit of these observations also hold true for Methodists like George Whitfield and Enlightenment thinkers like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and Immanuel Kant. Okay, so I hope I've convinced you that Quakers did not oppose slavery merely because they were Quakers, Methodists because they were Methodists, Enlightenment philosophers because they were Enlightenment philosophers. So why do scholars return again and again to this circular, not explanation, but description, even if it comes in more nuanced and sophisticated guises than what I admittedly have laid out here in a very sketchy and simplified way? Well, I claim it's because they read these texts at face value, um, filled with religious imagery and scriptural reference. <clears throat> they take it at its surface. But religious language was a language that almost everybody understood in this period. It was a way of talking about, a way of seeing the world. So, of course, an 18th century Quaker is going to speak like an 18th century Quaker. Everything could be expressed in religious language. We know all too well that slavery could and was justified in in the same religious language. So Christianity, in this sense, is neutral here. Even if these texts make a million claims that there is some true vision of Christianity that views slave-keeping as an absolute heresy, a similar point could be made about humanitarian sentiment and the language of enlightenment thought that often corresponded to emerging theories of scientific racism. My point is that if you look more carefully at these early anti-slavery texts, then you begin to see other concerns coming up over and over again. And these other concerns, in my opinion, provide us with the explanations for anti-slavery, not religion and morality. And these explanations are constituted by material conditions on the ground, political, economic, and ethical. And they are irreducibly specific both in terms of geography and their historical moment. And by the way, this is not to say that these uh, writers were simply pretending to be religious or moral. On the contrary, what I'm saying is that religion and morality should not, and in fact cannot, be separated from other concerns like politics and economics in this period. What has happened is that people, and by people I mean scholars, Scholars have attempted to draw an arc of progression from the earliest advocates of anti-slavery to the abolitionists of the 19th century. This is, of course, a very nice story, but it doesn't tell us anything about the completely different reasons why someone opposed slavery in 1729 as opposed to someone in 1864, even if they themselves sought to draw that connection or retrospectively projected a kind of family tree. As you can see here, the British abolitionist Thomas Clarkson had already attempted to create such a narrative and give it visual manifestation. Here he uses streams as opposed to branches on a tree. 
uh, following the abolition of the slave trade by parliament in 1807. So the overarching argument of my project is that anti-slavery emerges again and again over the course of the 18th century, though always in forms that are limited by the urgencies of a specific historical moment, by geography, and by technology, by which I basically mean access to print. And this happens in relation to perceived contradictions around notions of liberty, which are different for different groups at different times, as well as investments in projects of colonial power. Okay, so I know this sounds like a lot of academic jargon. So let me give you an example of what I mean before we move on to talk about slave revolts and practices of containment and how all of these things are related to one another. Contradictions or paradoxes of liberty and investments in projects of colonial power. I know that's quite a mouthful. So in order to explain what I mean, I'd like to take a look at a very important, a very obscure little book by the Quaker Ralph Sandiford, who lived from 1693 to 1733. Um, a few biographical details are perhaps in order. We know from Sandiford himself that he was a sailor and had been shipwrecked in the Caribbean. Sandiford was born in Liverpool and had converted to Quakerism probably sometime in early adulthood. This tells us something, if we might speak acronistically here, about class, which is to say Sandiford came to Pennsylvania not as a Quaker grandee, but as a middling convert who was saw a possibility for social mobility and spiritual community. Sandiford's book, uh, printed in 1730, so that's the image on the left, was printed by a young Benjamin Franklin and is called The Mystery of Iniquity. Uh, though that's the title of the second edition. The first edition is entitled A Brief Examination of the Practice of the Times from one year earlier and was also printed by Benjamin Franklin. The library company, by the way, has multiple copies of both of these editions. In fact, it was a very early project in Franklin's career, printed at Sandiford's expense and given away by him for free. Though it's also one of the few things, interestingly, that Franklin didn't put his name on, probably because he realized how controversial it was going to be, and also because Franklin was not, at this point, anti-slavery. Nonetheless, it's significant that Franklin was the printer of this text, because if Franklin hadn't set up shop in Philadelphia, the book probably would have never been printed at all. The two other printers in Philadelphia at the time, Andrew Bradford and Samuel Keimer, uh, were basically official printers, competing with one another for contracts, either from the Quaker meeting or from the legislature, neither of which would have been particularly happy with an anti-slavery tract that explicitly excoriates both bodies. So the sheer fact of print here, of an open press, represents a limit and a turning point. And in this way, Sandiford becomes one of the earliest published writers on anti-slavery in English. There are other examples, but I don't have time to go into them here. Now, what's fascinating about Sandiford's book is that while it's replete with religious and moral language and scriptural arguments against slavery, it also does something else, something much more threatening to elites. 
Sandiford resists Quaker leadership in Pennsylvania by taking up the very grounds of that leadership's legitimacy, first exercising it upon himself, and then asking, demanding, really, the same of others. The book basically says the fact that the elite allows and profits from slavery makes them illegitimate, not merely because slavery slavery is morally reprehensible, which he makes this point as well, but because it undermines the whole utopian project of Pennsylvania as a holy experiment. And here, I'd like to take a step back just to say a few words about settlement in Pennsylvania. That is about Pennsylvania as a settler colonial project. And this is somewhat of an interlude, um, but I hope it will become clear why I'm telling you all of this afterwards. I argue that Pennsylvania was established at the interstices of two competing views, two revolutions, if you will, at work in 17th century England. The idea of revolution, by the way, here is in reference to the English Revolution, and the period roughly from the English Civil War in the 1640s and 50s to the Glorious Revolution in 1688. Both revolutions make use of the term liberty and for that reason, need to be very carefully delineated. The first, represented by a number of radical dissenting groups, and which was ultimately to fail, and I put quotation marks around the word fail here, thought of liberty as a universal promise, that all men and women as fellow creatures, to employ the language of the day, and which is satirized here in this print from 1650, were equal before God and had commonly inherited the earth to work for their sustenance. An important aspect here was liberty of conscience, freedom of belief. If all men and women were equal, then no one has any more perfect idea or privileged access to God than anyone else, including, and especially including, priests and theologians. Moreover, property and particularly enclosed property, implied in this first view a perverted violation of customary law and the gospel. In fact, there was even a comparison drawn between the enclosure of land and the authority of the established churches. The radical Gerard Winstanley said that official churches are like the enclosures of land, which hedges in some to be the heirs of life and hedges out others. By the way, I should just mention that enclosure meant that land customarily set aside for common use, the commons, where one could collect firewood or dung um, for fuel uh, or forage, um, and that this land was being transformed into private property by a wealthy minority, the men of property. And there were all sorts of new laws put in place in order to protect property, um, and that involved capital punishment say, for hunting in some nobleman's woods or merely for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, this anti-property stance, or this stance of ambivalence towards property, was represented by radical politico-religious groups such as the Diggers, but also to a decidedly more mild extent by groups like the Levelers and the early Quakers. This context of early modern enclosure 
is so important because it reduced huge segments of the English population to what was seen at the time as a life little better than slavery. That is, a life of complete dependence upon wage labor. On the other hand, the second view, the second revolution, was one that associated liberty with property. This view was held up by its advocates as being quintessentially English. That's to say that property couldn't be seized arbitrarily by the king, and there were all sorts of limits on his power. Magna Carta, habeas corpus, and the other documents and customs that comprise the English constitution. Following the Glorious Revolution in 1688, with the establishment of constitutional monarchy and the triumph of parliament, this view was celebrated in particular by Whigs and by theorists like John Locke. But this view is a little more complex than what it first appears to be. It's backed up by an older ideology of improvement, which conceives of land um, as a resource that must be used in a particular way. And land not used in that way is considered waste. And wasted land is subject to expropriation by people who can make better use of it. So you might be able to see how this logic provides justification for colonialism and for indigenous dispossession, which historically took first, took place first in Ireland and then in North America. And it's no surprise in this context that John Locke was involved in both the colonization of the Carolinas and in the slave trade. So as I was pointing out, Pennsylvania was established at the confluence, as it were, of these two views regarding liberty and property. So, and this book, um, that this image here, um, there are some people who believe it was written by William Penn, but in any case, was very popular in early Pennsylvania, um, represents a synthesis in a certain way of these two views. So from the first view, the radical view, religious toleration, liberty of conscience was adopted. A constituent conception of equal inheritance of the land, or at least of a leveling impulse, meanwhile was dropped. After all, William Penn was a noble and a major landowner who had had familial experience in Ireland as a settler colonial. Um, but more than that, and more than William Penn's personal worldview, since William Penn was of a younger generation than these other groups, was the fact, as I have already pointed out, that the first revolution had failed and radical groups had been aggressively suppressed over and effectively silenced over the course of the second half of the 17th century. Through imprisonment, torture, Quakerism had moved towards quietism and bureaucratic tightening, etc. And though some radical ideas were incorporated into the second view in order to effectively neutralize them, it was the view of the propertied class and not the first that triumphed, and which still is at work today. In short, the supremacy of a conception of liberty shackled to private property and the ideology of improvement. Capitalism. So what does all this have to do with Ralph Sandiford and slavery and ultimately with slave revolt and containment? In my opinion, everything. Sandiford's book views slavery, that is, New World Racial Slavery, 
as undermining the very possibility of English liberty. Why? Well, for non-elites like Sandiford, Pennsylvania was supposed to be about freedom, not only of conscience, but also the ability to achieve that freedom through property ownership. Because remember, liberty is now shackled to property, even for those like Sandiford, who in other ways continued to remain faithful to the spirit of the more radical tradition I pointed out. This idea that Pennsylvania could provide such freedoms came to be known as the best poor man's country. Land was supposed to be cheap. You could work it and raise yourself up from poverty, even if you had come as an indentured servant in a temporary state of unfreedom. This was, in a certain way, what the promise of Pennsylvania was supposed to mean. Because as long as you were desperately poor or religiously oppressed, as was the case in old, overcrowded England, you couldn't really be free. You had to compete under awful, degrading conditions to sell your labor. And this wasn't supposed to happen in Pennsylvania, Sandiford thought. There was supposed to be mobility, both social and literal. But such mobility was becoming increasingly difficult in the 1720s and 30s, a period of, the, which is the period of Sandiford's publication. Before long, land, like in England, was in the hands of a few. So elites like James Logan, who was William Penn's secretary, a famous bibliophile, the library company inherited much of his library, and a land fraudster, had bought the rights of early land purchasers who had never made the journey over to Pennsylvania. But after a wave of German and Scots-Irish immigration, land was in short supply and expensive. Moreover, slaves stolen from Africa were a source of exploitable labor. They were, in short, private property. Now, who can compete with that? A system of private property in which laborers are not even in possession of their own labor. Sandiford says that poor people, meaning poor English men and women, through no fault of their own, quote, starve for want of business where slaves abound. And poor people cannot or dare not employ slaves. And so their ability to prosper, or at least to be stably free and independent, is foreclosed. So we see that this argument goes way beyond religion and morality, and even though religion and morality, or rather a religio-political ideal, determines its language. Um, what we really have here is a form of political and ethical resistance that bears an internal relation to power. What do I mean by this? I mean that resistance here is all about an investment in the utopian project of Pennsylvania, ostensibly the same goal as the powerful men directing the course of that project. Now, this is perhaps a controversial thing to say, but it's one of the main theses of my research, that anti-slavery here is not really or fully about slavery. In the case of Sandiford, it is about the failure on the part of spiritual and legislative leaders to direct the colony in such a way that it could fulfill the demands of a holy experiment. A holy experiment, that is, for the English working poor. To make my point clearer that anti-slavery for Sandiford is not only about slavery, I should point to Sandiford's proposition that enslaved people of African descent might be given the option of being brought back to Africa. 
He says nothing about the trauma of the Middle Passage and says almost nothing about Native Americans other than about conversion and about the threat they present when kept as slaves. But this is perhaps explained away by a belief in Pennsylvania's founding myth of fairly paying Native American groups for their land. Pennsylvania, in short, was a project of English liberty. But there's something else here too, and I'm finally coming to the title of my talk, something that comes up over and over again in these early anti-slavery texts, even if often in very subtle forms, and that's the threat or anxiety of slave revolt or conspiracy, the resistance of enslaved people to the condition of enslavement. Some writers even saw revolt as justifiable, or at least it wouldn't come to them as a surprise. Who wouldn't, I think we should ask ourselves, free themselves and by any means possible. Some white anti-slavery writers were simply horrified by the prospect, but most agreed that a slave revolt would be disastrous for their respective colonial projects, whether that's Pennsylvania or as in a, another very interesting example, the early days of uh, colonial Georgia. Even the most conventional preemptive measures and crackdowns would imply a state of constant paranoia and violence. And paranoia and violence don't sound particularly utopian. They sound, on the contrary, downright dystopian. So this brings us to the other paradox of liberty. Freedom for a wealthy for a few wealthy white elites in the form of property and land and expropriated labor to make that land profitable came at the expense of liberty of others, both those whose labor could be expropriated in the form of racial slavery and those non-elite whites who were exploited as servants and workers and forced in a certain sense to compete with slaves. The disappointed hopes of the second group were supposed to be made palatable by an emerging doctrine of white supremacy. As the working class scholar Theodore William Allen has pointed out in his groundbreaking work on the origins of racial slavery, class struggle, and what he calls the invention of the white race. So now in the little time that we have left, let's turn our attention to some solutions provided over the course of the 18th century in Pennsylvania specifically. The first is an inward spiritual plea for self-reformation and the second is what I'm calling the practices of containment. I discovered a fascinating, this fascinating little book at the library company uh, during my time there as a fellow. As far as I'm aware, there are only several copies of this book in existence. It's called A Little Looking Glass for the Times, or Remembrancer for Pennsylvania, by one GC, which is the thinly disguised alias of George Churchman a Chester County Quaker and son of the reformer and minister John Churchman, friend of the famous anti-slavery Quaker minister John Woolman. The book was printed in Wilmington, Delaware in 1764 by a former apprentice of Benjamin Franklin. Besides making clear that the book is addressed to, quote, people of every rank and station in the province, which signals a claim to the work's universality, at least within the confines of the colonial province of Pennsylvania, the title page makes explicit the self-conscious tradition that this work participates in. 
if we look at the three epigraphs from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, which are here towards the bottom of the page, uh, it is clear that we're dealing here with the Jeremiah, which is a literary work um, that laments the contemporary state of society. Yet Churchman paraphrases, adding his own interpretation in the second epigraph. Quote, for the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee because of thine iniquity. Where the last part of the original biblical verse merely reads, for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah. Clearly, this Jeremiah is warning Pennsylvanians that their downfall is connected to the spread of injustice unethical and unfair actions or treatment of others. And Churchman had good cause for concern. Although the book was printed in 1764, we are informed in the preface that Churchman had begun writing his long poem near three years ago. He goes on to mention that he had no apprehension then of publishing until some fresh considerations were awakened in his mind a few weeks past relating to the present state of affairs in Pennsylvania. Adding that these events occasioned an appendix with a willingness to expose the whole to public view. The events that took place between 1761 and 1764, Churchman's years of writing, were some of the most traumatic in Pennsylvania's roughly 80 year history. Following the outbreak of the French and Indian War in 1754, most Quaker officials resigned from Pennsylvania's governing body, effectively ending already long compromised dreams of holy experiments and peaceful kingdoms, as I've already pointed out. The war lasted until 1763, only to be followed by Pontiac's war that very same year, which would continue for another three years. In the meantime, a vigilante group of Scots-Irish frontiersmen known as the Paxton Boys brutally massacred about 20 Native Americans burning their homes as they went. And the library company did a fantastic um, exhibition on this either early this year or, or last year, I believe. Um, this situation was disastrous for pious Quakers like churchmen who were fully invested in the project of religious power that was early Pennsylvania. Now Pennsylvania's fate seemed up for grabs. It would go from being, to use churchmen's words, the garden of the Western world to a sinking and melancholy province in danger of total ruin. It's clear throughout this long poem that people's lives are indeed the problem, and in particular, their lack of self-denial, a phrase which Churchman, like many of his Quaker contemporaries, uses in profusion. Although greed, iniquity, and the wars that result from them are referred to constantly, it's striking that slavery is never mentioned once explicitly. But I would argue that the presence of slavery is to be found everywhere in this text, even in its seeming absence. It's slavery's ordinariness, its omnipresence in the 18th century Atlantic world that makes it seem absent to us. This text, however, offers nothing short of an injunction a warning that both slavery and the mistreatment of Native Americans leads to the ruin and ideals uh, of the ideals and promises of colonial experiments, regardless of how asymmetrical they may have actually been from the beginning. 
What I find absolutely fascinating here is illuminated by stanza 26. May not a warning from Jamaica's fate alarm us with the fearful sudden fall of other places of a later date. This passage might not resonate with the contemporary reader, but for readers in 1764, it would have rung prophetic. In 1760, less than a year before churchmen began writing, a slave rebellion broke out in Jamaica, led by the enslaved Fonte chief, Tacky. And though it's barely remembered today, even among scholars, fortunately, the historian Vincent Brown has remedied this lack with his important new book that came out earlier this year. Tacky's revolt was the most significant slave uprising before the Haitian Revolution in 1791, and the largest shock to the imperial system until the American Revolution. As Brown points out, this image that I have here, despite its caption that claims it to be of a revolt in 1759, no such revolt took place, it almost certainly depicts the events in Jamaica from 1760 to 1761. But it's not so much a representation of a specific event as it is of a more general fear of Black revolt, a general fear or anxiety which, to quote Brown, made distinct occasions interchangeable in the white political imagination. The events that took place in Jamaica reverberated throughout the Atlantic world and were reported on in the major Philadelphia newspapers, including the Pennsylvania Gazette, uh, printed by Franklin and Hall. In fact, although Churchman footnotes the dates of a crop failure and earthquake in 1763 and an unspecified epidemic in 1762, he doesn't add a footnote about Jamaica, suggesting that Tacky's revolt, or at least the situation in Jamaica more generally, was perhaps better known than natural events that took place in Pennsylvania's own hinterlands. So if Pennsylvania doesn't extricate itself from the slave system, a system so out of touch uh, with the Christian ideals of self-denial, humility, and meekness, then it's only a matter of time until it will suffer the same fate as Jamaica an increasingly untenable society based on paranoia, violence, and the omnipresence of death. So what about containment? What does Churchman call for in light of the threat or anxiety of slave revolt? Let's take a look at two stanzas that illustrate this. There are more, but I've chosen the two most significant for the time being. For woe to them that laugh, especially when mourning for the times God doth require when sackcloth garments should our clothing be, ashes and dust instead of rich attire. And I'll skip the second quote because I think I'm running out of time here. So we're dealing obviously here with the Christian ideal of self-denial, but it goes further because Churchman also adds a concrete action, even if only a metaphorical one. In short, one has to change the self in order to change the system. So this mid-18th century uh, view is very spiritual and is echoed by reformers like John Woolman. But there's another one that will come to be hegemonic by the late 18th century. And that's what I'm calling the practices of containment. And this is the last part of what I'll say today. I should start out by making clear that advocates of containment as a solution to the anxiety of revolt were not the absolutely barbaric plantation owners of the Southern colonies or the West Indies, but rather were the liberals, most of them cautiously anti-slavery. These were the gradual abolitionists, Republicans, and prison reformers. 
Hence my focus on Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in particular, the early republic's capital and a place where free and open debate was possible. A place in which the enslaved population by far outnumbered the, was, was by far outnumbered by the free black population. Containment is first and foremost a strategy of maintaining control by one class over others. And this is accomplished in large part by minimizing any possibility of solidarity through an organization of physical space. I'd love to go more into the history of this, beginning with the suppression of Bacon's rebellion in the 1670s in Virginia, but we have to move on. In fact, I, I'm realizing that I'm probably almost out of time here. As you might know, uh, the late 1780s were a real moment of crisis for the young nation. There was an acute economic crisis in the wake of the revolution, and many of those who had fought for revolutionary ideals felt that they were witnessing a re-entrenchment of an older social order um, with the men of property at the top and everyone else struggling at the bottom. This situation is exemplified by conflicts like Shays' Rebellion in rural Massachusetts in 1786. Um, slaves, of course, were hardly taken into consideration at all, even with the passage of Pennsylvania's 1780 Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery, which famously didn't um, free a single slave. The Constitution, despite overtures to its greatness and universality, is very much a document of this period. It supremely seeks to practice containment not only of slavery, which it does not mention by name, but also of democracy in general. Okay, so I just want to end now on a couple of words talking about um, the yellow fever epidemic in 1793. And before I do this, and really this is just, it will be two minutes. Um, I'd like to just mention a very strange text by Benjamin Rush from 1792, almost exactly one year before the outbreak of yellow fever in Philadelphia. Um, Rush gives this talk to the American Philosophical Society, lending his voice to an already existing theory that black skin was the result of a particular strand of inherited leprosy. Now, this can only strike us today as horrifically racist and utter quackery, but what is so fascinating is the way in which the language and logic of science, of medicine, of enlightenment, is employed to advance a theory of racial difference. And at the same time, this theory of racial difference is subverted because since leprosy is a disease, it can be cured. And when it is cured, there will be no further justification for racism or slavery. By curing this disease, as he calls it, Rush claims that a large portion of happiness will be produced. The problem of slavery for the early, early republic can thus be managed by containing the condition of black skin. Um, a year later, Rush would reassert racial difference by positing to Philadelphia's black community the incorrect theory of black immunity to yellow fever. And in so doing, um, was able to convince them to serve as nurses and caretakers, what we would now call frontline workers during the course of the epidemic. The result was obviously disastrous as it was for Philadelphia in general, but that wasn't all. Despite their frontline work, African-Americans were accused by the printer Matthew Carey of exploiting the situation by looting and charging exorbitant fees. Absalom Jones and Richard Allen's leaders in the community refuted these charges in their 1794 narrative, 
Um, and it's a real tragedy, as they themselves point out, that they were forced to respond in this way. After all, uh, all whites were not made to answer for the bad conduct of the few. And this is my final point here, and it's often overlooked. It was believed that yellow fever had been brought to Philadelphia by planters and their slaves, fleeing revolution and Saint-Domingue, the French colony that is now the nation of Haiti. And so there was perhaps a double fear of contagion, a literal contagion of fever on the one hand, and a contagion of revolutionary fervor on the other. And this anxiety is made most apparent by the barring of francophone blacks from entering Pennsylvania, presumably to prevent the spread of Jacobin ideas. Um, Pennsylvania reformers, in short, responded with criminalizing blackness and poverty. They sought to contain what they perceived to be the risks of freedom. It's no surprise then that this was the period of the emergence of the penitentiary invented in Philadelphia and of other forms of containment architecture, like the quarantine station, the Lazaretto, built in 1799. By the way, Lazaretto here is associated with leprosy, since St. Lazarus himself was the, is the patron saint of lepers. And it also became a model for places like Ellis Island, spaces that sought to control and regulate the introduction of anything foreign. The 1790s then, is that the revolutionary foundation of the young uh, nation was viewed by the governing class as being in desperate need of containment. Those ideals were fit for some who knew how to use them, but perceived as extremely dangerous in the hands of others. And the consequences of this, unfortunately, uh, as current events continue to make all too clear, have yet to been fully overcome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Cameron. Uh, and thank you for, for, for not only taking us on a tour of the 18th century, really from front to back, but also for the generous plug of our exhibition, which I know that I and several other people worked very hard on. So I'm glad to hear that it's having some kind of effect. I'm going to give folks a moment to uh, think about questions they want to submit. We already have a few in queue, and I'll get through as many as we possibly can in the next 10 minutes. But to kick us off, I want to start with something that's just something that I would like some clarification on, um, and it's probably just that I missed it. What is the relationship when uh, we're thinking about the Seven Years' War, Pontiac's uh, War, Paxton uh, Boys, that context in particular, which is fresh in my mind, what is the relationship between the native warfare that Philadelphians are experiencing firsthand and the specter of slave revolt? Are they drawing that connection or are you drawing that connection? So... I I think it's both. Um, and, and as I point out, you know, in this, in this text that I look at, the reference there is, is both hidden and obvious. Um, so it wasn't immediately clear to me what this reference to Jamaica was and, and why it would be mentioned at all. Um, and then on further investigation, it turns out that Jamaica was kind of the, how would you put it, the, the worst case example of what a, in the British world, of what a colony could look like. Yeah. One that just, I mean, the, the, if you look at the statistics, the level of death and the, the level of, of just vi daily violence. And so I think this was in the minds of especially pacifist Quakers of what Pennsylvania could turn into, given the background of 
of these native warfares. If we can't even deal, you know, obviously Pennsylvania did not have a huge enslaved population. So slave revolt as such was not as threatening as it would be in a slave society like say Virginia, South Carolina, or or in the Caribbean. Um, but nonetheless, um, it's I've used the term before colonial anxiety uh, to encompass both of these these two phenomena, um, both peaceful relations or or relations with with indigenous people and relationships with an enslaved population, both of which present. Um, were perceived as as undermining uh, the potential of of living in a peaceful colony, which was so utmost in in especially the minds of of Quakers. So I hope that answers your question. No, no, perfect. Thank you. Uh, so we have a question from an anonymous attendee. Um, slavery was widespread in the 18th century, um, and it was widely found in most areas of the globe. Um, as you state, many European leaders justified slavery on religious, economic, and imperial grounds. Why then wasn't slavery uh, during the 18th century um, instituted throughout Europe? So I think there, there are many conflicting theories on this. And um, one is that Europe itself uh, did not... The structure of, of European life and especially European agrarian life did not actually lend itself to the plantation or to, uh, slavery and, and particularly not towards racialized slavery. So, I mean, this has, I don't want to go into the long history here of serfdom, but basically by the late Middle Ages, slavery in Western Europe, at least had died out. There are debates as to whether or not slavery existed in other forms. For example, in the Russian Empire, in as serfdom, uh, you know, up until basically the 20th century. Um, so basically, it has to do with already existing agrarian conditions in Europe, with a um, with demographic crises. Um, also, simply that it wouldn't have been profitable in the same way because there wasn't the same uh, intensity of uh, producing cash crops as, for example, in the Caribbean or in the southern colonies. I mean, it should be pointed out, of course, slavery didn't really establish itself in a significant degree um, in the northern colonies either, especially if you think of New England. I mean, most of the most enslaved people in the northern colonies were domestic uh, slaves or, you know, on a, on a smaller scale. So, I, so that would be my answer. Um, Mariah Mikova asks, would you consider the lack of self-denial an indulgence, or can you elaborate on it a bit more? Certainly, I would say that 18th century Quakers um, would see it as as greed. <laughs> um, certainly, you know, as something that involved um, not truly listening to um, what the needs of the community, but also the the sort of inner um, uh, direction provided by a spiritual life. So um, self-denial is interesting. I mean, it has a very long tradition in Christianity, of course. And um, a term that I had used in the past to think about this was, was publishing oneself, which comes from a long tradition in uh, particularly Roman thought that actually was a procession in terms of humiliating yourself in public. And so there is, uh, throughout Christianity, a, a, a way in which self-denial 
even a certain form of humiliation, which involved both humiliation as we understand it today and humility, enacting humility, um, is held up as a, as a virtue. Well, this actually leads us very nicely into a question from Jay Miller, who begins by thanking you for this presentation. Oh. And then asks, can you clarify the broader point you're making about the relationship between theology, politics, and economics? He goes on, it seems like you're trying to move explanations of Quaker anti-slavery uh, away from a focus on theological motivations. But it's hard to see how the political and economic motivations you foreground can be separated from or prioritized over theology. Is the lesson here not that we are or that that we need to shift to analyzing politics rather than theology, but instead that for these writers, theology, politics and economics were fused? Yeah, so that's exactly one of my points. I, I think um, I often I think I pointed out in several places that I'm not trying to deny the emphasis on religion and morality, but it, I'm trying to make the point that we've actually uh, siphoned religion and morality off as if it were a separate category, and that politics in this period um, um, is infused with the language of religion, but it's still politics. And and to give that, you know, the material conditions that inform um, a religious reaction or moral reaction need to be given uh, their own space. Incidentally, JP chimes in. Thanks, Cam, for an excellent presentation. Um, and I'm inclined to uh, second that, especially knowing that you're conducting this right now from Berlin, where there's a quite a big time difference. So the fact that you're doing this in the middle of the night and taking questions with poise uh, is to your credit. Thank you so much, Cameron. Um, and uh, for the rest of you, uh, we are going to continue on our Fireside Chat series next Thursday. Same time, same place, your living room. Uh, Arwen Smallwood is going to be talking about the mysteries of the lost colony in the Iroquois Confederacy. Um, I very much hope you'll all join us again. And thank you again, Cameron, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Will. Thanks a lot.